Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for nearly four years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, once in a while I break my own self-imposed format and talk to someone I've always wanted to interview. This is one of those episodes. My guest today is design journalist turned curator Eric Chen. American-born Eric is general and artistic director of the New Institute, the Dutch National Museum for Architecture, Design and Digital Culture in Rotterdam. During one of those careers that makes you wonder what on earth you've been doing with your time, He's also been creative director of Beijing Design Week, lead curator for design and architecture at M Plus in Hong Kong, curatorial director of the Design Miami Fairs in Miami Beach and Basel, and professor and founding director of the curatorial lab at the College of Design and Innovation at Tongji University in Shanghai. Oh, and next year, he'll be acting as artistic director for the London Design Biennale. In other words, he has a genuinely global perspective of the design industry. We're going to be talking about his first year at the New Institute, the role of organisations such as his after the pandemic and the rise of movements such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too, as well as the museum's new exhibition, The Extremely Topical Energy Show. Eric, thank you very much for doing this. Was that all reasonably accurate? Yeah, no, that was good. The only um, small thing is that uh, it's actually the new institute that is artistic director of the London Design Biennial next year. Oh, okay. So it's not you personally. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we made it an institutional thing, which is kind of a new, different way of doing things. I yeah, guess. yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting. Okay, well, maybe we'll talk about that later on. Um, I'm keen always to give listeners a sense of context for these podcasts. And I'm keen, where, where are you at the moment? Is this your office we're looking at? Yeah, uh, it's my office in Rotterdam, uh, overlooking the, well, you can't see it right now, but it's overlooking the new uh, depot by MVRDV for the Boyman's Van Boyning and that, yeah, that incredible silver ball. Which is a very shiny thing, right? I can almost see my reflection in it. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you, do you work, Eric? I mean, I'm, you're not giving much away on this Zoom shot. Are you very organized? Is there paper strewn everywhere in your workplace? How do you organize yourself? Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> the Zoom screen is very strategically cropped, uh, so you don't see the self-created chaos I'm surrounded <laughs> with. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, you are the general director and artistic director of the New Institute in Rotterdam. At the moment, you have an exhibition on entitled The Energy Show, which I guess was always going to be topical, but after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's become an even more urgent subject, right? Yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, of course, we didn't plan it this way, uh, but um, uh, but but as we all know, the energy transition that we need is a highly urgent topic, with or without the war in Ukraine. We were really happy to collaborate with the Solar Biennale, which is a new biennial launched by the Dutch solar designers Marianne van Abel and Pauline van Dongen. Its first edition was in Rotterdam this past month, and we were happy to sort of work with them on uh, organizing this exhibition to coincide, uh, curated by Matilda Krzykowski. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to confess, I haven't been able to get over to Rotterdam to see it. Oh, we have to get you here. The the Eurostar is great from London. Well, yeah, I need to come. I mean, and, and as you say, you weren't the curator, but maybe you can tell us what what visitors could expect. I mean, its subtitle is Sun, Solar and Human Power, right? Yeah, I think Matilda's main aim was to 
look at solar power and its potentials and implications from more than just a kind of techno-utopian standpoint. Of course, there are examples of both historical and contemporary and speculative of different technologies and other sorts of uses of solar energy. But she wanted to really sort of engage audiences to really make them understand that this is also a cultural and social transition that we need to undergo. That technology is, is only part of the puzzle and that we perhaps can and ought to rethink our relationship with energy and the sun at the same time. That's quite interesting. In what way, Eric? Well, um, you know, the show, of course, includes a sort of timeline about solar energy, but it also uh, includes a number of sort of artist uh, projects and installations that really speak about how we think about the sun. We have a number of, <laughs> of talking suns in the exhibition. Talking suns? Yeah, the, the number of uh, videos where the sun is sort of talking at you okay. or maybe even with you. <laughs> I don't suppose you've ever seen the Teletubbies because I used to have that in the Teletubbies UK children's show, Talking Sun. Oh, I know of the Teletubbies, but I was a baby. It's weirdly disturbing. Yes, I I, I know enough (laughs) to know that it was. Uh, somewhat uh, disturbing. But also that there was a sort of open invitation to really tap into this kind of uh, DIY solar crowd or even movement that's been uh, cropping up all over the world where people are invited to sort of send in their own kind of DIY solar ideas and uh, and, and, and audience members can participate that way uh, too. Mm. I mean, there are some fundamental issues, aren't there, with decarbonizing the grid. This podcast is primarily, not always, but primarily about materials. And there are problems around sourcing what are called critical raw materials, things like cobalt, lithium, magnesium, platinum, which we need to electrify everything. I think there are 30 critical raw materials, and the biggest producer of 16 of those is China. So essentially, we could be as reliant on China for clean energy as many parts of Europe currently are on Russia for gas. Is it the job of a show like yours to tackle those kind of geopolitical issues, I wonder? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think these are things that a show like ours can and should address. But certainly, as you say, the sort of current situation with Russia, which has you know revealed our dependence on Russia for oil and gas, especially here in Europe, is a reminder of a broader conversation that's going on around the world about supply chains and different levels of, of let's say, self-sufficiency and building in redundancies and so on and so forth. Clearly, the pandemic also got this conversation started as well. And there's a lot to be said for it. I think we do need to be sort of careful, though, that in building a greater resilience with our supply chains and and also focusing on things uh, more regionally and all the benefits that that does offer, uh, we need to be careful not to sort of slide into the kind of nationalism and isolationism that, that we're also seeing around the world. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting balance that has to be struck, I guess. Yeah, but you also bring up another good point about you know, the fact that all these clean energy technologies rely on these rare earth minerals and other things that, uh, in fact, are quite, quite dirty to mine. And I think this also resonates with the exhibition in that, generally speaking, we need to stop thinking about thinking in terms of solutionism, right? And, and, and this goes back to the kind of techno-utopian way of thinking about the future and solar energy and, and many other things that the show is trying to get us to move beyond. Because these problems that we are trying to tackle, I think we can acknowledge are much too complex to be quote-unquote solved, right? Like we need to sort of move beyond this sort of linear kind of way of, of thinking about these, these issues. With every solution, there come more problems. Sometimes the solutions create even bigger problems. There are always knock-on effects and unintended consequences. And of course, one person's solution is another person's problem. 
So it really leads us to sort of needing to think more holistically and more in terms of, you know, negotiating or balancing these very complex systems that we are entangled with to do the least harm at least uh, possible <laughs> and maybe even undo the harm that we've already done. I mean, this is why I think the discussion these days has moved, well, at least in some quarters, moved beyond talking about sustainability. We hear more and more people talking about regenerative design versus sustainable, meaning can we design uh, our buildings, our cities, our products to, in fact, help heal some of the damage that we've been done rather than simply try to minimize further damage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what attracted you to the New Institute Post in the first place, Eric? I mean, we should explain the, the Institute was founded, what, 2013? Yeah. As a result of a merger between three separate bodies. So it covers architecture, design, and digital design. Yeah, uh, digital culture. Digital culture, beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a bit nitpicky. I like to say that we're a young institution with a long history. Uh, mm. We do carry with us the kind of uh, legacies of those three uh, prior uh, institutions. But uh, to answer your question, I mean, uh, I had been living in Shanghai. Well, I had been in China for 13 years, first in Beijing, then Hong Kong, and, and then uh, finally Shanghai. And to be honest, uh, about a year and a half ago, when this position first came open, I was not looking to leave China. I was quite happy. You know, I, I had a very happy life and I, I wasn't looking for a new job. But when this came up, it really occurred to me that if there is any post that I would be really interested in, uh, it, it's this one. I mean, for my interests and inclinations, you know, this really is a dream job. So at, while at first I wasn't keen on taking the plunge, the more I thought about it, the more I realized if I didn't go for this, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd probably... Yeah, yeah. It had quite a controversial start from memory, the Institute. There was yeah. a sense that it was created more to cut funds than the fact that these disciplines were converging. I seem to recall a logo, it was temporary, I think, but all the redundant stationery and marketing materials from the three institutes that were kind of then overprinted and, and covered up. Oh, wow, you have a better memory than me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's obviously found a very distinct niche. Yeah, so, I mean, to your point, I think most people tend to agree that bringing architecture, design, and digital culture together in a cross-disciplinary way is not, in principle, a bad idea. In fact, no, it could no. be a very good one. Um, the problem was more, uh, the controversy arose more from the reason this was done, the manner in which it was done, and, and, and I guess who was doing it, which was a sort of right-leaning, or you know, by, by Dutch standards, mm. <laughs> government that was uh, dramatically slashing cultural funding. That being said, I think the Institute, which I should say is, is called an Institute, but it's also really a museum uh, in that we do have a collection. Uh, we do do exhibitions and public programming, but we're also an Institute in terms of some of the other tasks, uh, often policy related, that we undertake. Yeah, because there's research, obviously, and, and there's also an agency angle to what you do. I mean, agency, I guess, by you do the Venice Biennale and stuff like that you're, in, you're responsible for. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're commissioner for the Dutch Pavilion uh, uh, for the Venice Architecture Biennale. We also organize the Dutch presentations and other sort of biennials and triennials, including the, the Milan Triennale, which is currently on view. Uh, we'll, we'll do a small presentation at the Shenzhen uh, Biennial um, later this year. And uh, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, we're going to be uh, artistic directing the London Design Biennial next year. But it's, it's a sort of range of, of, of activities uh, that this incredible collection, the capacity and, and desire to rethink and in innovate the collection. Uh, the emphasis also on research and speculation, looking at, you know, critical issues of the, well, the past, present and future. Um, this sort of mandate to operate at, at local, national, regional and international levels. I mean, really, uh, there's no other place like it. And uh, especially when you consider that our assignment explicitly is to be experimental. I mean, we're a, a relatively large national museum with a state archive, and yet 
it's very sort of deeply embedded in our DNA to constantly question, experiment, mm. rethink things, and to do things differently. I think this sort of weird animal that was created from this merger that you were speaking about is very much a strength of the Institute in that it's created a very complex organization. But I think it's a complexity that positions us well to sort of really think about and address the very complex you know, issues and questions that we're being faced with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been in post, as you mentioned, a little over a year now. And shortly after you got the job, you did an interview for DZine's 50th anniversary where the design website asked various people to um, put forward manifestos for the future. Oh, right. You asserted that you wanted to get rid of manifestos completely. I think you described them as distracting. Why was that? Yeah, right. My, my manifesto was to... It was not to have a manifesto. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> to abolish all manifestos. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, nowadays also manifestos, it's sort of like curating, right? Manifestos can mean anything almost. But I guess the, the, the manifestos that I was re- referring to really rooted in the historical sense, really in the 20th century historical sense, when you talk about the 20th century avant-garde and so on and so forth, was really about proffering a kind of singular position, right? And I think maybe going back to what I was saying about needing to go beyond thinking in terms of problem solving, the sort of singular way of looking at things and of of tackling things is has sort of served its purpose and also shown its shortcomings. One can argue, as I did, that it's it's manifestos that have gotten us into the mess that we are in in the first place. This idea that there's a right way of looking at the world, a right way, a single way of doing things. There's a growing discussion about how modernity and its imposition of a so-called rationalism on the planet is really at the root of you know things like colonialism and also the sort of ecological you know, our relationship with, with nature that, that has produced the ecological catastrophe that, that we're in. And that all came from this way of thinking that was in large part uh, and in many ways driven by the manifesto. The world is way too complex for this. Um, there is not uh, these sort of grand pronouncements uh, I think have gotten a little bit tiresome. And they've really only led us towards one dead end after another. And perhaps it's time for us to realize that if we are to kind of more fruitfully uh, figure out how we exist uh, in this very complex world on this very complex planet, you know, the the sort of manifesto way of thinking is is, is not the way of doing it. Um, that it's really more about a, co- a constant sort of negotiation of different uh, different points of views, different ways, different forms of knowledge, uh, different ways of, of looking at things and approaching things. And it's also culturally and geographically specific. This this goes back to the idea of looking at things more in their local context, whereas manifestos, uh, whether intentionally or not, almost inevitably evolved into a kind of universalizing totalitarianism, you know, the, the idea that this is the way to do it, and regardless of the specificities of a situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Having said all that, if it wasn't a manifesto, it was certainly a fistful of ideas you came up with subsequently in, in that kind of mini lecture you gave for DZine. The late and amazing Marcus Fares, the founder of DZine, who we all, uh, who, as you may know, passed away recently yeah. and, 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 and is sorely missed. Um, he actually, I think he pointed out that my anti-manifesto was written like a manifesto <laughs> in some ways, uh, in some ways that was intentional. I mean, I think part of my point about, uh, moving beyond manifestos is that manifestos in many ways do not allow for contradictions, right? Because they try to bring some, they, they try to enforce a sort of false clarity on different questions. And so to me, it was perfectly appropriate to, to be contradictory myself yeah, in creating a manifesto against manifestos. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. It, it was, I, I was having fun. 
No, fair enough. I mean, one of the striking elements you mentioned in that piece, in that interview, in that non-manifesto manifesto, was this notion of turning the Institute into a zoop. Yes. For listeners who might not have heard of this word before, and I have to confess that I wasn't very familiar with it, what is a zoop and, and how do you go about creating one? It's very reasonable that you wouldn't have heard of a zoop before because the word didn't exist. <laughs> until, oh, fair enough. That's <laughs> really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until one of our researchers, Klaus Kautenbrauer, working with, with, with many others, uh, came up with it. Um, the word is a conflation of the Greek word uh, zoa for life and cooperation. Uh, and in a nutshell, what it proposes uh, is a framework for bringing uh, non-human or other-than-human voices and needs into organizational decision-making processes as a way of um, instilling more ecologically regenerative practices. There's years of research and there's a whole methodology behind it, but what it means in practice is uh, we have since spun off the ZOOP into uh, an independent uh, nonprofit zoonomic foundation uh, and institute to sort of carry forth you know, uh, this effort. As part of the process of us becoming a ZOOP, they have appointed a, a so-called speaker for the living uh, to our board of directors who now represents a non-human life in our relevant uh, decisions. There's an internal ZOOP working group and so on and so forth. And, and, and this model is, is meant to be uh, adaptable to almost any kind of organization, big or small. Right. This kind of follows on from on your website. You mentioned um, there's a river and a mountain and a national park in New Zealand that have all been granted legal personhood. So they have rights in that sense. Yes. Yeah. And of course, in South America, Ecuador, Colombia, Bolivia mm. have, have been real leaders in this area. So it, it's not as strange as it might initially sound. You know, um, one thing that's great about the Netherlands um, is that, you know, <laughs> there is incredible openness here. So when we first started saying we're going to uh, appoint a speaker for the living to represent all the plants and animals and, and microbes and even uh, AI, you know, that we share our, our site with. So this also includes AI as well. It's not just oh, yeah. Yeah. organisms or trees or it's technology too. Yeah. Well, again, this goes back to the idea that if we are to sort of Again, this is even related to the kind of uh, anti-manifesto idea, because also manifestos are very top-down. The notion that in order to really move forward in a more productive and regenerative way, we need to start uh, working more more collaboratively. Now, of course, um, there's been a lot of talk about collaborations across disciplines and, and professions and so on and so forth uh, for decades now, uh, but there's a growing I think realization that we also need to think of, of nature as a collaborator and even uh, things like, like AI and other, uh, you know, machine uh, uh, technologies. We need to use all the tools uh, at our disposal and all the different kinds of knowledges that are out there. So uh, the, the, the ZOP very much sort of reflects that. And what I, and what I was going to say was that, you know, uh, as an American when I first heard about this, I was like, okay, you know, but you know, it sounds a little bit, it might sound a little bit wacky. And I think to a lot of people, it, it might, although again, in the Netherlands, I've been surprised at how sort of, you know, uh, almost nonchalantly, you know, uh, interested uh, the, 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 the response has been. But you also have to realize that, you know, this, the, the ZOOP is really a way of kind of, in some ways, institutionalizing within contemporary frameworks, the way we've been working with the rest of the planet for most of human history. I was in India earlier this year, speaking at a, a conference and talking about the ZOOP and and, and the response from uh, from the audience there was like, you know, when I was talking about collaborating with with nature and, and giving agency to microbes and plants and so on and so forth, they're like, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, so what? I mean, this is how we've been thinking for for millennia. So 
it's not as 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 perhaps you know wacky as some might see it and more to the point i think it's about normalizing in our own context a different way a more regenerative way of 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 acting as as organizations you know we're we're, we're constantly being told now how we need to get used to all these horrible new normals you know whether it's extreme whether uh, water wars uh, you know ma- ma- climate refugees and so on and so forth the question I think that we we should also be asking ourselves is: Are there more positive new normals that we can also be working towards? And 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 this notion of 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 collaborating, uh, working more collaboratively with nature, I think is a, a good one to start with. Yeah, yeah. And are there tangible results yet? I mean, are there things that you can point to that the museum has done that are, that are changing as a result of the the zoop kind of uh, policy? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we have a lovely building with a garden uh, and, and, and ponds, and um, already we have been uh, making some changes that are more accommodating of some of the other life forms. I mean, it's everything from small things, like we had some sort of bat boxes for bats that were located in the wrong place that we've now moved to uh, a better place in terms of its exposure to the sun and, and, and so on and so forth. We happen to be already renovating our garden, and so... Uh, the garden has been, let's say, evolved according to uh, Zoop principles, um, which allow for a sort of lighter uh, touch in, in kind of facilitating the the growth of different species and their interactions with other species. You know, right. based on uh, the kind of annual cycles of the birds and the insects and the microbes and and, and so on and so forth. Um, we're also trying to make this more visible in that. Uh, we're hoping next summer to have uh, an installation on our ponds. This will be an installation building uh, by the Dutch-based Nigerian architect Kunle Adeyemi, uh, Adeyemo, I'm sorry, um, uh, who is, uh, of course, very well known for his floating pavilions in Lagos and other places uh, where, he's, uh, where, where he's done them. He's expanding his research into uh, the notion of water cities, uh, sort of looking at these floating pavilions in more urbanistic terms. Uh, we're hoping he can do an installation on our ponds of a kind of floating water city that uh, he's working in collaboration with our Zoop working group to make sure that you know these structures not only are minimally disruptive to the other life forms that use our pond, but uh, in fact maybe encourage their flourishing. So some of the uh, floating pavilions will be there for the use of of other life forms, whether it's the sort of ducks that come to our pond in, in spring and summer, or even the algae that grows on its surface. Mm. I mean, the work around Zoops have been going on at the institute since 2018, I believe. I mean, I'm intrigued, when you applied for the job, was it a prerequisite that you take it on? Could you have said, this isn't for me, what is this about? It was not a prerequisite, but it was one that I was happy to sort of almost turn into one, because one of my shticks uh, that I spoke about uh, when I was uh, in discussions about this job is, is, is my belief that I think cultural institutions can play a more proactive role in addressing all these crises and urgencies that we are rightly turning our attentions to. Um, because I think in many ways, we have limited ourselves to being places of you know, debate and discussion uh, and presentation, you know, where we pose questions and raise awareness and maybe issue oftentimes vague calls to action. And I think all of that is, uh, is, is really uh, important and worthwhile, but can we be doing more? You know, can we actually act as societal testing grounds for some of the ideas that we discuss, debate, and exhibit? And I think as cultural institutions, where we really are uniquely positioned to do this, to try some of these things out in a very public way, 
um, because, you know, we're, we're not really government, you know, and we're not the private sector either. We don't have the constraints and the pressures that government and, and the private sector often face that, that prevent them from sort of trying things out. Uh, our, our job is to actually, you know, uh, do things differently and make new ideas visible. So why don't we do it? So when I arrived and I, I, I dug a little bit deeper uh, into the ZOOP, um, I was like, testing ground, case number one, let's just become a ZOOP and uh, see what that means, see how it plays out and share what we learn with everyone else. And we're going to sort of keep going on uh, with this sort of testing ground idea to put sort of words into action uh, because we can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the places you talked about putting words into action in your DZine non-manifesto was the shop and lifting it out of the capitalist market. I'm wondering a year on whether that's happened and what your plans for it are or were. Well, oddly enough, uh, in three days, we are having a research night here on this very topic. So, you know, the the idea of doing what we're calling the uh, new store really arose from uh, an observation, you know, that... Uh, many designers out there are, are questioning their their complicity in the extractive systems and so on and so forth that that, that have um, uh, caused so much harm. And you know, when you go to biennials or design school graduation shows, I've been struck by how many sort of uh, projects and proposals you see for rethinking not just systems of production but also systems of consumption for kind of redefining what consumption and production means and trying to devise new systems of exchange and ways of assigning value that sort of, you know, still work within a market system uh, to various degrees, but also explore potentials outside of it. These projects, you know, and and these range from everything from like um, mycelium grown objects and and, or 3D printed algae objects to different uses of of a blockchain, uh, you know, circular and donut economics, I think would sort of fit into this uh, to kind of more sort of radical uh, propositions uh, based on bartering and gifting and so on and so forth. These ideas are out there. Mm. So, you know, um, instead of just exhibiting more and more of them, you know, and putting more and more of them in biennials, why don't we just make them products of a shop and see what happens? So will you be able to barter in your store? I like the idea of that. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. And also hopefully in sort of, you know, making these proposals real and using our audiences as the quote unquote customers and, and seeing how they respond, we can see again, what works, what doesn't, and also sort of take different components of these ideas and sort of reconfigure them. Uh, this goes again, back to the anti-manifesto thing is that manifestos tend to be based on singular logics, like, you know, and, and these singular logics oftentimes, you know, don't work, or again, they have unintended consequences. And, and maybe what we should be doing more of now is looking at the multiple logics that are out there and were needed or, or, or interesting and potentially useful. We can break those logics apart and sort of, you know, reconfigure them and see what else might work. You must have a very forward thinking shop manager, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, <he's, laughs> yeah, we uh, were working on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't poke. We've gone through some extraordinary times in the last couple of years, pandemic, the rise of Black Lives Matter and Me Too. I'm wondering what that means for an institute like yours and and more specifically, I guess, the collection that you have acquired over the years. Yeah. Well, in terms of the kind of decolonization question, if that's sort of what I think that might be where I'm heading. Yeah. Of course, this is a big uh, question uh, and an issue that that, that all museums or or most museums are are, are facing. Um, And certainly I can say that 
this was an issue that was already, I think, being addressed in a lot of ways at, at, at the Institute. So once again, it's been almost a sort of smooth sailing in that the mandate to always think several steps ahead and to really not just look at, but, but really address the, the sort of critical questions was already there. So in terms of things like the collection, as you, what you're asking about, we have had in place for a, a couple of years already a kind of rethinking the collection initiative, which, which seeks to uh, revisit uh, the collection, how it was formed, the ways in which some groups were included or not, and to rectify that. Uh, there are many sort of sub-initiatives within this initiative, but so for in, example, in, there, there have been a number of new acquisitions of feminist architecture groups from the 70s and 80s who are sort of re- really quite quite radical in their feminist approaches in, in terms of re- rethinking space from a feminist perspective. We've done a lot of work on, on queer spaces, and uh, we've also developed a sort of system of kind of annotating the collection through our collecting otherwise project, as we call it, you know, where we've developed tools such as the asterisk, which will then be uh, starting next year, we will begin to insert into all of our archive records that allow us to annotate them from other perspectives, especially when you know there are problematic questions of history um, involved. We're also working with a number of colleagues in other parts of the world, especially former Dutch colonies uh, like, like Indonesia, which we're collaborating closely with them to again revisit our collection, but also work with them in developing archives and narratives coming from, in this case, Indonesia itself as an initial step towards thinking about forms of redress. So Mm. um, rather than sort of making our collection as a kind of central hub that then looks at the Dutch former colonies, can we uh, instead assist these geographies like Indonesia in looking at themselves and telling us about themselves rather than, uh, again, that, that, that sort of Eurocentric gaze that has been so deeply embedded in our field for so long. Mm, mm. Interesting. Can we talk about your background, Eric? Because you have this hugely eclectic CV. Yeah, it's a mess. You grew up, I think I'm right in saying, in Chicago. Your parents were from Taiwan originally, I think? Yeah, well, they were born in China. Uh, right. But then in 1949, their, their their families went to Taiwan when the Communist Party took over. Right. That, that kind of asked my question, I guess, what brought them to the US initially? They both went to the US for uh, graduate school, and that's where they met, right. in Chicago. And that's how I wound up <laughs> being from there. Yeah. Interesting. And so what did they do? Oh, well, my father went to study uh, physics, and my mother was studying international relations. And my father subsequently went back to Taiwan, where he was a professor in material science uh, for a very long time. And my mother stayed in Chicago, um, where she was a librarian for the East Asian uh, collection at at the University of Chicago, which is where they they both went to school. So was design and architecture kind of an intrinsic part of your upbringing in that case? Uh, Coming from Chicago, absolutely. I mean, you know, Chicago is a city that, that really prides itself on its its architecture and the mythology that it's built around its architecture. So it's very much in the blood. I mean, I grew up three blocks away from Frank Lloyd Wright's Roby House, you know, and surrounded by, you know, Mies buildings. And, and uh, there's a Saarinen building uh, just down the street as well. And of course, all the other architectural landmarks of, of the city. Yeah. Because mm. you studied architecture initially, you got a BA, but then you also did a BA in anthropology. So was there a point where you decided architecture wasn't going to be for you oh yeah i i knew i wasn't going to be an architect even before i went to architecture school (laughs) which is quite an unusual thing to do in that case (laughs) well i mean you know i mean i had interned uh in high school i'd interned at an architecture firm in chicago and and uh it it was a great firm 
but I, I, yeah, I, I just couldn't see myself <laughs> doing that. But yeah, no, I mean, architecture was my first love. And, you know, I, I guess my reasoning was, you know, not everyone who studies history is going to become a historian, not everyone who's so just, just study what you love. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you did the MA in design history. So there's a slight change of tack, I guess, or isn't there? Yeah, well, I guess, so I did architecture and then, as you said, anthropology. Um, and so I was looking at, you know, spaces and cities, but then also cultures. And I felt like the, I, I, I don't know if I was so conscious of it at, at the time, but I must have somehow felt that now what was missing from the sort of spaces and uh, spaces, landscapes and culture picture was was objects so for me design history kind of uh, filled that gap and did you have a sense with doing design history what you wanted to end up doing no you started in pr <laughs> oh god how did you know this well i yeah, I, I researched occasionally <laughs> uh before discovering journalism i mean I'm, I'm kind of interested there seem to be so many design journalists now at the top of major institutes or you know big curating jobs there are similar skills required, presumably? <laughs> yes, you have done your homework. I, I'm often asked about this, and I've said this. Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, so many design curators and, and museum directors actually come from journalism. And I think that makes perfect sense because, A, uh, there is a kind of immediacy to design you know, that really builds upon that sort of journalist sense for a good story or a relevant story. And at the same time, really, with both journalism and curating, you're kind of doing the same thing in that you're sort of just going out there and, and sniffing around and seeing what's interesting and trying to tell a good story about it. It's just through, through different means. There's a very different pace, though, Eric, isn't there? I mean, the joy of journalism is that you have an idea and you just do it. Whereas working in museums, you have an idea and it can take a year and a half to come to fruition, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you deal with that change of pace. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe, uh, wow, I've, I've never been asked this before, but maybe the way I deal with it is to just do more exhibitions at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so your CV would suggest. I'm intrigued you spent 13 or so years of your career in China. I mean, as we said in the intro, you're a creative director of uh, the Beijing Design Week and lead curator for Design and Architecture M Plus in Hong Kong. Was it difficult to uproot yourself from China and move to Europe? Ah, um. Yeah, uh, it, it was, to be honest. Like, as I said, I, at the time, had no intention or desire to leave, though, of course, you know, this was a year and a half ago, and sometimes, you know, given recent developments and also, you know, the, the, the lockdown in Shanghai, I'm really thankful I wasn't there for that. But no, it was a decision that I really struggled with. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask, because relationships between the West and China have become well, distinctly frosty in recent years. Yeah. I mean, what's your take on the situation in China? Is the West right to worry about Xi Jinping's intentions? <laughs> um, I think uh, the world is definitely going in a scary direction right now. And I think we're certainly entering a period in which there is the, the sort of clash of ideologies or clash of systems that we thought we had overcome with the you know, end of the Cold War is, is probably coming back. So I do think there is plenty of reason to worry. That being said, um, you know, I think this is all the more reason for those of us in the cultural field to continue to engage with other places and our colleagues and peers in those places uh, as much as possible. Uh, this is not only China, but other geographies as well. And this is not necessarily from some kind of doe-eyed sort of belief that culture is going to save the world and so on and so forth. It really is in some ways more pessimistic in that 
I think the role of culture right now is to at least keep the remaining threads, you know, that tie different places together intact so that they don't all snap. Mm, mm. It's interesting. You told the Scratching the Surface uh, podcast that the US and China have more in common than they'd like to admit sometimes. <laughs> because as somebody who's lived and obviously grew up, but also lived in China for a long time, I'm wondering what those commonalities are and whether it's the job of somebody like you to point it out to those nations. Yeah. This was an observation I first started making in less tension-filled times. You know, like both <laughs> countries have a flair for kitsch. <laughs> you know, both both countries are very sort of consumer-driven uh, uh, societies. But I think nowadays the similarities, uh, I mean, to put it very simply and reductively, have to do with the fact that I think, you know, uh, so-called great powers tend to act like great powers. And this is where it gets scary. I think great powers they tend to focus on maintaining and expanding their own power. And that becomes their agenda. And it always seems to kind of lead towards their own sort of versions of different forms of hegemony. So uh, we have two great powers now that are uh, not on the same page. And they're very different in some ways, but they also often act in very similar ways as well. Mm -hmm. Getting back to you and your career. I mean, looking at the things that you've done and the number of things that you've done, it always seems to me there's a slight restlessness to it. I'm wondering, are you restless as a person? Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's it's why like I realized early on that I would be a failure as an academic. You know, one of the things I love about what I do is like like I, I love archives and collections. You know, and I love doing research. I love the idea of doing research. And I get excited by going to archives, but also inevitably after like three or four hours, I get <laughs> in an archive, go start going stir crazy. And, and yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> but academia has been quite important to your career as well. I mean, you, you're family director of the curatorial lab. How does that dovetail with everything else that you do? Working in China, you know, as a curator, it wasn't so much about bringing let's say, Western or established models of curation uh, to China, because you know, a lot of that's just sort of technical stuff. But instead, seeing what new curatorial practices or what different kinds of curatorial practices might emerge from you know, the specificities of contemporary China. So the curatorial lab was sort of our way of doing that uh, at Tongji, of investigating different ways of curating drawn from the circumstances of China. So, for example, in China, the kind of cultural institutional infrastructure is not so strong, uh, partly by design. And so the production of contemporary culture is sort of disproportionately coming from the commercial sector, meaning especially brands uh, and real estate developers who are doing all the big exhibitions that get all the attention and all the artistic collaborations and commissions and so on and so forth as a way of building their brands, or in the case of real estate developers, drawing audiences you know, also to their shopping malls and whatnot. So you also see the emergence of a very strong kind of art mall uh, typology in China, where shopping malls are also coming with museum-type spaces and positioning themselves as immersive art center. So we wanted to kind of look at the potentialities of that, drawing a lot, in fact, from uh, the sort of very famous Harvard Guide to Shopping yeah, uh, that Rem Koolhaas and, yeah. and, and others did uh, 20 years ago. But this was, of course, before the rise of social media and e-commerce totally changed the kind of imperatives uh, for bricks and mortar retail, where things became more increasingly about having that Instagram moment and so on and so forth. So we wanted to kind of deconstruct all of this and see what sorts of other curatorial strategies could be drawn from that. That's just one example. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't necessarily your ambition to be an academic in that case. It's just kind of happened, it sounds. Yeah, I don't mean to sound so kind of um, aloof about it. I'm really not. But I think you asked about, you know, my sort of work trajectory before and Mm. all of us just kind of happened. You know, that brief stint in PR was sort of an accident uh, right after graduate school. And that sort of kind of by accident led to me becoming a journalist, which kind of by accident led me to sort of start curating more and so on. Yeah. Eric, our time is nearly up. Yeah. So it's the final question, which is what we can expect from you in the future. Obviously, I was going to say you're the artistic director, but the new institute is the artistic director of uh, the London Design Biennale, for instance, next year. What will you be doing there? Yeah, well, I think apropos to this discussion of, you know, the unraveling of the geopolitical, (laughs) you know, order and also this notion of kind of testing ground or at least putting words into action. We're trying something a little bit different, I think, with the biennial next June. And this stemmed, uh, once again, from an observation that this biennial, you know, is is still working on a national pavilion model or national and territorial pavilion model. And instead of sort of coming up with a theme and then just asking the pavilions to respond to it, which is what I think normally, which, which is the more orthodox way of doing things, we thought, could we kind of maybe hack the biennial in, in some ways. And they've been so generous to sort of allow us to uh, work with us uh, in, in doing so. So whatever theme we came up with, we knew it would somehow relate to all these global crises and emergencies and urgencies and so on. And the thinking went, we all keep saying how these global challenges require global collaboration. But as we've been saying, the, the sort of globalization as we've known it since, since the 90s, at least, is, is, is sort of unraveling and becoming something else. And, and collaboration, uh, global collaboration is becoming increasingly uh, difficult. So instead of making a theme about global collaboration, why don't we actually encourage the pavilions to collaborate with each other? so that the biennial becomes a kind of semi-fictional alternative geopolitical landscape driven not by conflict and competition, but instead by collaboration. So we're calling it the global game, remapping collaborations. And we're, in fact, with Play the City uh, in an Amsterdam studio, developing an online game, referencing uh, Buckminster Fuller's famous world game uh, from the 1960s, which was very much about facilitating uh, global collaboration and tackling the world's problems. And this game uh, will be a little bit like a dating app, you know, where the where the different countries and territories will sort of create their profiles, you know, say what they're what they're looking for, you know, what their interests are, and hopefully that will be a way for them to you know, to find each other, uh, develop collaborations, form real collaborations, and, and and explore new types of collaborations. And that then, I hope will also kind of spatially express itself in the Biennale at Somerset House with potentially joint pavilions, uh, archipelagos of pavilions, decentralized uh, pavilions, uh, and so on. Well, I have to say that sounds genuinely intriguing. I'm really looking forward to seeing it next (laughs) year. me too. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. Eric, our hour is up. Thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciated that. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Really, thanks for having me, and and, uh, it was was great speaking with you. The Energy Show runs at the New Institute in Rotterdam until the 5th of March 2023. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. I'm planning on doing four more episodes before the end of the year, so look out for those. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, 
then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 